How did African Americans contribute to the Army from its founding until today? What were the struggles of race relations in the Army, and how has it changed over time? Who are some of the most influential and notable African Americans and African American units that demonstrated Army values? For answers to these questions and more Army History Insights, stay tuned. Welcome to the U.S. Army History and Heritage Podcast, the official podcast of the United States Army's Center of Military History. The Center of Military History writes and publishes the Army's official history, manages the U.S. Army Museum Enterprise, and provides historical support throughout the U.S. Army. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. I'm Lee Reynolds, the Strategic Communications Officer for the Center of Military History. In this episode, we're examining the role of African Americans in Army history. And joining me for this discussion is Dr. Isaac W. Hampton. Thank you, Isaac, for being here today. Thank you, Lee, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So uh, let's give a little uh, um, information on um, uh, his background. So Dr. Isaac W. Hampton II is the command historian at the Army Materiel Command at Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama. Dr. Hampton is originally from Urbana, Ohio, and he is an Army veteran. Hampton earned his Ph.D. in in 20th century U.S. history from the University of Houston, where his research focused on the condition of the African-American officer's experience concerning unfair promotion, systemic racism, and the influence of the black power movement on African-Americans serving in uniform during the Vietnam era. He received his master's degree in history from Texas Southern University and his bachelor's degree from Urbana University. He is the author of the book, The Black Officer Corps, A History of Black Military Advancement from Integration Through Vietnam. And that book was published in 2012. Well, again, uh, uh, thanks, um, Isaac, for being here. And that's that's an impressive uh, list of qualifications. (laughs) Thank you, sir. A lot of uh, it's kind of a a passion of of mine to to delve into the the history of Mm -hmm. African-Americans from a social military standpoint, social and cultural military standpoint. So, yes, and it's ongoing. Right. Oh, ab- absolutely. So uh, let's just jump into the conversation here. Um, so we're, we're just going to kind of do an overview. We're going to hit different eras of Army history and the, the role of African-Americans during those eras. And, and we'll get to some of the key points here later. But let's just start. Let, let's look back all the way to the Revolutionary War. So what was the role of African-Americans and how did it uh, how did it change from the Revolution through the Civil War? Well, we when we look at the period of the Revolutionary War, you have to keep in mind that during the time of the American Revolution, that the status of the slave people uh, had been institutionalized. And we see that we have a racial caste system uh, based on people with African ancestry. So by the numbers, in around 1770, you had four to 62,000 um, people of African descent in the colonies. And we see that around 30,000 would actually be free uh, African-Americans in the college. That's about 5% mm-hmm. of uh, the total African-American population. But when we look at the, the military component, we see that once the war is, is underway, that slaves 
would escape to to British lines for oh, protection wow. by the loyalists. And uh, we see that there were more African Americans who sided with the British mm-hmm. than with the American patriots. Now, let me let me give a, a little quick background on that. So we see that uh, the colonial governor, Lord. Dunmore mm-hmm. uh, issued a, a proclamation in 1775 who would promise freedom to the slaves if wow. they were willing to fight for the British Army. Mm-hmm. And uh, so again, this is this is not the immediate stance that we see from uh, the American side. Mm-hmm. So um, we see that this decree would, would basically follow the motivation of, of enslaved Africans mm-hmm. uh, in the American colonies to escape to, to British lines. Oh, wow. Now, if I can change gears quickly mm-hmm. to the uh, American side, we see that in, in now, now African-Americans fought um, early on in the war next to the Concord. You know, they were taking, you know, pot shots at the British and they mm-hmm. were, you know, informally part of these militias. But uh, in November of 75, we see that uh, General George Washington issued an order barring black soldiers from the continental army. However, know. due to manpower constraint mm-hmm. uh, and the conditions of the war in 1777, Congress will remove mm-hmm. these restrictions. So again, manpower becomes critical. And uh, and I think that's a recurring that, theme that we're going to see throughout yeah, our army history. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So um, you know, records indicate that even with these uh, regulations in place, that every uh, future state, every every colony, the 13 colonies, would uh, recruit blacks into its ranks. Mm-hmm. And this is this is obviously what we see. Wow. And and um, uh, so that's that's during the, the American Revolution. And I think was it, it was Rhode Island Regiment was I think there were a lot of uh, African-Americans who were serving there. Yes. Uh, so now when we when we get to the the southern colonies, mm. they have a. Uh, uh, a lot more problems with having blacks in in their uh, militias, even if the government's going to pay them for them. So mm-hmm. long and short, in the South, there are no African Americans in those militias. Right. Uh, historical sources indicate. However, these slave masters would loan out their blacks to be able to fight in the colonial army. Okay, mm-hmm. Washington's army. Why? Because it gets them out of that area, and there is this fear that there could be some type of, of slave uprising. Oh, yeah. And on top of that, when you have uh, former slaves with, with, with guns, it tended mm-hmm. to upset the social order of that mm-hmm. time. Right. And then for the British, for those that did a, uh, escape and go to the British lines, how were those, um, those men used in the British Army? Okay, so we, we see that the, the slaves who escaped the British lines there, so numbers are hover right around 25,000 that served with the British. It, it could be wow. more than that, but they were used as, as nurses, they were used as teamsters, they were used as um, uh, to, to dig in bank. It's kind of like engineers to a degree, yeah. uh, in support of the army, but also there were some approximately 5,000. Uh, who served as soldiers, okay. and one of the more celebrated ones was the Ethiopian Brigade. Huh. So um, there's a there's some literature on that, mm-hmm. but um, again, this is this is uh, you know we see that more blacks would fight on that side, and they did for the for the Patriots. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, and, and and again, that was with the promise of of getting their freedom. 
Yes, the pro- and, okay. So now, once once we get deeper into manpower struggles, we'll see that. Let me switch to the American side. Yeah. That they would offer them land uh-huh. and a quote unquote fighting bonus. So hmm. this is the money was right around a, a, close to a thousand dollars the equivalent, um, and the, the land could vary to twenty acres, ten acres, but obviously freedom as well. Yeah. Now, for the British side, it's typically, hey, we're going to offer you freedom if you come and fight with us. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see that after the war ends, we find that the British, now they have all these these people they, they promised freedom to, uh, they would wind up in places like Sierra Leone, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, mm-hmm. uh, across the, uh, the West Indies. However, many of them, sadly, would wind up being put back into slavery. Wouldn't even wind up at some of these places, yeah. so it's it's not a it's not always a happy story, right? Uh, but what about on the American side? So were those prom- any of those promises kept? Well, on the American side, uh, again, still mixed results. I would mm. say more more positive and negative. But for these slaves that were loaned out from the South, we see that these slave owners wind up keeping these monetary bonuses uh-huh. and would expect return of their slaves. Now. Not, not all of them are going to return. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see that that once that these uh, slaves had served with these um, men in the north and fought, um, we see that there there isn't a a rush to return them back to the south after they kind of distinguished themselves. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, but it's still going to be mixed mixed results when we see um, you know it wasn't a blanket that hey you fought you're going you're going to be free, mm-hmm. particularly if you were loaned out from the south, right. Now, moving forward from the Revolutionary War, I mean, st- still, you know, we have uh, slavery legal in the United States. Um, but then what was the role, if, if any, um, in the army, um, you know, post-Revolutionary War up through the War of 1812 and, and really in, into this, uh, up to the beginning of the Civil War? Well, so for the post-Revolutionary War period, uh, the, the war to really talk about is going to be the war of 1812, kind of that mm. second war mm-hmm. with the uh, with England, and really a a, a a crystallization point in African American military history. As we see that the, the governor of Louisiana, Governor William C. C. Claiborne, mm. he would in, he would actually appoint a man of color by the name of Isidore Honoré to the rank of lieutenant. Oh. Two years later, December 1814, we have another gentleman by the name of Vincent Populist and Joseph uh, Savoy. Both three men of color mm-hmm. were appointed to the rank of major for the Negro battalions, again, for the black battalions. So we mm-hmm. don't, we're not, we're not leading white soldiers, but these are going to yeah. be black regiments. Mm-hmm. So these soldiers would go on to fight with uh, General Andrew Jackson in the Battle of New Orleans mm-hmm. in 1815. And they, they fought with honor. So I would certainly that this is the beginning of mm. the Black Officer Corps in mm. American military history. Oh, wow. And, and those units that were formed, those all-black units, wh- where were they from? Because uh, I, I would think in, in, in the South, um, that would be a, a, a tough sell, wouldn't it, for, for, uh, well, to form uh, black units with weapons in the South? Yeah, well, again, it's, a, it, it's all about emergency manpower. Oh, when okay. you look at African-Americans across history, Typically, they're always an emergency source of manpower. And at mm-hmm. this at this stage of the game, now we're talking Louisiana as well. Yeah. So they have a very unique relationship in history when it comes to uh, these the social relationships with, with, with people of color. And keep in mind, many of these people are going to be of mixed ancestry. Some could 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 obviously pass. 
uh, with a wink and a nod. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, we, we see that in in times of, of crisis, uh, you don't care what color folks are right. if they're going to help you get to the end state of, of winning in a war. Mm-hmm. So again, this is we see this played out um, time and time again. Right. And uh, the, the Battle of New Orleans is, is, is a great case in point. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, beyond uh, the War of 1812, um, in, into the 1820s, 30s, 40s, um, did we see um, and you know any expansion of the role of African Americans in the in the army? Yeah, now we see a a closing of ranks in the army, mm. uh, largely where there there really aren't any any, any African Americans serving mm-hmm. um, in in the regular army. Now the Navy is a different case. I know we're talking mm. about um, armies, but the Navy you always had um, deck hands and crewmen. Uh, who would be of um, African American descent serving on these ships? Because uh, again, that's that, that's kind of a unique job that not everybody uh-huh. wants to do. Right. But we, we largely a closing of of the ranks in the American military as we are heading towards the Civil War. And you have to remember, this is the backdrop of of of, of, of antebellum slavery. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. We see slavery is of all the land. It is illegal even to to have um, uh, people who are enslaved to learn how to read and write. Oh, yeah. And so now, and, and we do during the period of the antebellum period, you have more free blacks living in the South than you do in the North. It's not oh, exponential, wow. mm-hmm. but uh, it, it's certainly by, by the thousands. I don't mean 50 or 60,000, but I want to say those numbers around 220 to 270, mm-hmm. um, kind of a 50 50 in, in, in both, both areas. And then as we then uh, approached the Civil War, I mean, going into the Civil War, um, how did the um, the expansion or, or the use of African Americans in the army uh, change? Well, so it's so now at the at the outset of the Civil War, um, officially, uh, again, there's there's no blacks in the in, in the regular army. Now, leading up to the Civil War, you see these militias. Uh, who would support the, the the Union economy, you know, Bloody Kansas and things like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you do see blacks who will who will unofficially fight and serve mm. uh, with, with with their white counterparts. So again, but this is this is nothing official. Right. We really don't see uh, African Americans officially serving uh, in uniform until after uh, General Order Number One Forty Three. Hmm. which was issued by the War Department in May of 1863. Now, we do have the Military Adjustment Act of 1862, mm-hmm. which made it legal for African-Americans to enlist in the United States Army mm-hmm. for the purpose of, and let me be clear, constructing entrenchments, performing camp services, or any other right. labor. Mm-hmm. So they could also serve in the Navy legally. Mm-hmm. But we don't see the, the arming of blacks really until after 1863. Oh, wow. And that order really created the Bureau of Colored Troops, mm-hmm. which designated African-American regiments as United States Colored Troops, or right. what do we say on their belt? USCT. USCT, that's so right. This is, yeah. So that's going to be the, the origin mm-hmm. of really how we get black service members post-1812, right. in the Army at least. And, and I, I think the authority for that was, uh, I, I'm just guessing here, but was that the Emancipation Proclamation? Absolutely. So after the Emancipation Proclamation is passed in 1863, this is what 
really gives Lincoln that legislative legislative uh, top cover. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to take it one step further. And again, it, it's it's another manpower consideration, but it's also to help destabilize uh, the 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 Confederacy because remember the Emancipation Proclamation mm-hmm. only frees slaves in the rebellious states. It is not for oh, slaves yeah. uh, who are who are in the who are part of the union, and mm-hmm. we have a, a couple of the border the border states mm-hmm. um, that that certainly uh, are still still practicing slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that came as a result, I think, of the uh, the Battle of Antietam. I think uh, Lincoln used that victory he felt uh, strong enough to then issue the Emancipation Proclamation. So so tell me about the the formation of these. Now, now we have this order. Uh, tell me about the formation of these these all black units, or um, you know, uh, or what was called the U.S. Colored Troops. Yeah. So um, I, I, let me just refer back. When we talk about. Uh, let, let's just go back to one that folks probably know about. It was the the fifty fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, and but one of the the things is that the fifty fourth Massachusetts, special, uh, right? Yeah. Yes, fifty fourth Massachusetts. Thank you. We see that um, in order to remember that these black troops have all, they have white officers. There are no black officers at mm. this stage of the game. Now there, there will be in the civil war. And I know that's a, and, and we know that, that uh, it, particularly in Louisiana is a call up because there is a, a black militia that's there. But let me stay on the, um, on the Northern side mm-hmm. for, for a moment that um, it takes a special officers. They have to go to this, this special school in the East. That tells them this is the the management soldiering of black troops, hmm. okay. And so they have they they almost believe that it takes a certain mentality uh, that these leaders have to have, these officers have to have in order to to manage and soldier hmm. uh, troops of black descent. So, but remember, there's a lot of resistance to this because you just think of all of the uh, of the uh, stereotypical or, or, or white superiority ideas about the inferiority of blacks, the fact mm-hmm. that they're not intelligent enough, the fact that they break mm-hmm. under pressure, um, they're cowardly, they don't have the intelligence. So again, you, you, again, it's another experiment mm-hmm. to where we see African-Americans having to really uh, work against all these forces to distinguish themselves in, in battle. Yeah, and, um, and but the 54th Massachusetts, and, and they really went on to distinguish themselves, I think, especially with the, what, the attack on Fort Wagner in South Carolina. Um, exactly. And, and, yeah. and there was a, um, a Medal of Honor recipient from that battle as well. Yeah, um, it would have been Sergeant William H. Carney, mm-hmm. uh, July 1863, again, at the Battle of Fort Wagner. And I'll reference uh, the great movie of Denzel Washington and mm-hmm. Morgan Freeman in glory. Right. Uh, it's a bit dated, but the, it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. But well, when we talk about the number of U.S. colored troops, we see that would be uh, 175 regiments that would be constituted by 1865. Mm. And again, that's about one-tenth of the manpower of the Union Army. Oh, wow. And we see that the U.S. colored regiments are basically the, the precursor to the Buffalo Soldiers regiments that would uh, fight in the um, in the Old West. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as far as another... People of, of note, let me mm-hmm. let me share. What yeah. I, I mentioned um, uh, Sergeant of Carney, mm-hmm. but when you look at the African Americans' performance during the Civil War, I think one of those reflection points or the inflection points is going to be the battle at Chaffin's Farm at the outskirts of Richmond, Virginia. Oh. So when I was the branch chief uh, historian. Uh, at Fort Lee for the Quartermaster Corps, I was able to go and, and see this area. But 
At that battle, you had 14, 14 African-Americans would receive the Medal of Honor for oh, their wow. actions at that engagement. So um, it's uh, it was incredible feat, yeah. but uh, a lot of people so, so died did, and got Right. Did, did, did those actions um, change, as, especially as we get to the end of the Civil War, moving post-Civil War? Did that change um, anybody's views about how African-Americans uh, could fight? And did it influence new units being formed after the Civil War? Yeah, well, the, the the white press would would celebrate and note these actions. So um, while it it is a, a feel good story, you have to remember that that that, that racism and African Americans' place as being subservient in the United States is well entrenched. Mm-hmm. So as as you know, Lee, I mean, you know, you talk about a second reconstruction mm-hmm. by the time you get to the 1960s. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously we'll have uh, the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment that mm-hmm. uh, will be the legislature that, that gives blacks uh, their, their, their freedom and right to vote and citizenship. But again, um, minds are very slow to change when it comes to the condition of African-Americans. But we, we did have, so the U.S. colored troops then continued on after uh, the Civil War, um, and then the formation of um, what's called the Buffalo Soldiers. If you could uh, address that, you know, who who were they, what did they do, and how did they get that name? Okay, so so this is the so understand that the backdrop. So 1866, this is when Congress created uh, six all black peacetime regiments. Mm. Uh, later, that would be consolidated into uh, four, which would be the Ninth and Tenth Cap. Mm-hmm. the 24th and 25th infantry. And again, this becomes the Buffalo Soldiers. But keep in mind, this is the backdrop of Reconstruction mm. of the South. And so while you had black troops that participated in that war, hey, this is kind of a hard piece mm-hmm. uh, for the South. And what you want to bring the country back together, they don't want a whole lot of black soldiers in the South, okay? Right. And I'm saying they weren't there, but the idea is that you see this when we talk about segregation, we see that they want these black troops away from the white population mm-hmm. with these, the, the majority of it. So this is where we see that these black soldiers are sent out west uh, uh-huh. to settle the west when we have these Indian wars. Okay, right. so uh, just to bring note, if you if you ever been to Fort Leavenworth, I'm pretty sure you have. I you have. see that that, that monument. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the Buffalo Soldiers that was, that was initiated by uh, General Colin Powell mm. uh, was dedicated in 1992. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Buffalo Soldiers, when we talk about the, the name of how they got that that um, identifier, there's been a lot of stories out there about how they got it. it was, was it because their, their hair, their color of their skin, the Indians give it to them? Well, I would say most historians would, would would probably agree just based on the sources that the Native Americans they gave this name to to blacks mm-hmm. because of the tenacity of how they would fight, but it mm-hmm. reminded them of, of of the buffalo in the sense of the the, the texture of their hair and the, the Native Americans that was their quickest reference point in the sense that the buffaloes were were, were very renowned in their uh, culture, a sense of strength, a sense of vision. And, uh, you know, they weren't used to seeing these, these African-Americans fighting mm-hmm. out there. Oh, yeah. So, um, but let me, let me dispel one more thing. Mm-hmm. So, look, these African-Americans, when we talk about the Buffalo Soldiers, these are frontier troops. 
Right. And when you think about uh, the construction of these towns, the protection of the mail, the protection of uh, of these of these ranches, uh, keeping the the Native Americans at bay from this American expansion, it's it, it's not the white cowboy tree. Mm. It's the buffalo soldiers. Wow, it's okay. Amazing. Yeah, you don't hear a lot about that. Yeah. No, you you don't. Hmm. You really don't. Um, but when you look at even the equipment they have, the the buffalo soldiers always had the slowest horses, the worst equipment, and just the things that are frontline soldiers, tip of the spear today, they have the best of the best. But back then, uh, largely because of who they were, they had the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. Now, they did have white officers uh, Mm -hmm. that would, um, so they may look black Jack Pershing. Right. Uh, You know, he spends time during the next imputative expedition Mm -hmm. uh, leading African-American soldiers. Mm But one of the key things is that you had, a degree of white officers, a number of white officers who did not want to so, did not want to be associated with, huh. with leading black soldiers. However, the caveat was if you do this, it could be quicker promotion. Oh, interesting. So oh, wow. that, that's kind of the side of the mm-hmm. other, other coin. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as far as someone to highlight, you know, don't let me get too far off track here. Yeah. We talk about the Buffalo Soldiers. Let me highlight Kathy Williams. Huh. Kathy Williams who pretended to be a man hmm. or uh, was able to, to hide her gender for mm-hmm. over a year so she could serve in the army. Oh, wow. Now, she was the first African-American female to enlist in the army, huh. and she's the only documented black woman to serve in the army in the 19th century. Oh, wow. Okay, so she was able to hide her gender until she until she was sick, and oh. uh, she, the doctor had to come and look at her and do these exams. They say, wait a minute, this is a woman. <laughs> but um, wow. there's a book out there uh, where she talks about, they have um, excerpts from interviews from her where she talks about uh, she wore the, uh, the, um, the Zouave uniform mm-hmm. and only two people knew about her gender and they tried to keep it quiet in mm-hmm. the unit. But mm-hmm. she was obviously discovered. So again, Kathy Williams, a, a very interesting character. Uh, a person in uh, American military history who was who worked with the Buffalo Soldiers. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's a, that's a piece of uh, information I didn't know about. So I'm going to look more into that myself. Um, and where did she fight? So um, or, or participate? Was she in the in the uh, westward expansion in the Indian Wars? Yes, yes. So she she served uh, with the Buffalo Soldiers. So mm-hmm. again, she was out there on that on that frontier. Mm-hmm. Well, probably you know there isn't a whole lot of uh, a lot of rules being 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 followed. Mm-hmm. So uh, again, yeah. that's how she was able to right. to keep that under undercover for so long. A years, a long time to get by with that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. So um, you mentioned the ninth and tenth cavalry, um, and then um, as we got uh, closer to the 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 new century, we were engaged in the the, the war with Spain or the Spanish American War. Um, but didn't they participate also in Cuba? Yes. Um, so we see that the first black regular army troops mm. to mobilize for Cuba, again, um, were again the 9th and 10th Cap, the 24th and 24th Infantry. Mm-hmm. And we, we will see that they will be sent from the West where kind of with really no white folks around mm. down to Florida. Now, Florida uh, was dogmatic in its vitriolic type of races towards black people. 
And the fact that these men were down there in uniform, oh, wow. uh, there's a, um, a, a quote from the Florida paper that, that says uh, something along the lines of, well, we don't care whether uh, Negroes are in uniforms or not. They will not be treated any different than our civilian mm. uh, citizens, which was not very well. Mm-hmm. So um, now let, let's talk about why were, what, what was the urgency to bring these four black regiments online to go to Cuba? Yeah. Well, let's discuss that. One reason is going to be that the War Department assumed that blacks possessed a natural immunity to the, the humid climate and tropical diseases. Uh. So they think that, hey, we can send them down there as, mm. uh, 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 embedded with our white troops. They can take the brunt of the, uh, of the fighting because they have these immunities. Mm. You know, well, that, that's obviously not, yeah. not true. Right. But, we, but we see that black troops would, would have, um, th- they willingly went. There was an excitement about going down to Cuba. Mm. And Look, Lee, you, you can tie this to from the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, to the to I'd say through the Korean War, is that African Americans wanted to distinguish themselves on the battlefield right. so they could win respect for the race. Mm-hmm. They would hope they hope to gain more civil, um, more civil rights, political rights, access. So these are some of the main drivers that we mm-hmm. see with this. Yeah, and and I, I think that's I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but that's a recurring theme here. Is um, the African American units were were called up, sent out um, at desperate times, um, and they distinguished themselves. And the fact that they that they fought as hard as they could, um, despite how they were being treated back home. So I, I I think that's that's a testament to who who they were. Yeah, and and they're carrying. It's not fair. Mm-hmm. I, I tell my daughter, hey, take care out of your vocabulary. Yeah. But we see that these officers are, are carrying the weight of representation for the whole, whole race. Um, mm-hmm. There's a quote mm-hmm. um, I read some time ago, which was from um, a black officer, part of the um, 8th and North Regiment. So obviously he's not a regular army unit. Mm-hmm. But he told his men, if we fail, the whole race will, mm-hmm. will shoulder the burden. Wow. And um, one thing, let me let me share this, is that when you look at people of African-American descent in and out of uniform, if they have a platform where they're going to be out and be seen and have these responsibilities, that, that there's an old saying that, uh, that when, when white folks come to work, they go there to do a job. Mm. But when black people with a platform come to work, they go there with a responsibility. Oh, wow. And wow. to carry so to carry this this type of, of, of burden is not is not fair. Mm-hmm. But again, it's the it's the optic that people tend to see, mm-hmm. and they tend to judge not not people individual individually. They tend to judge them as a excuse me. They tend to judge them individually if they if they fail. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me. If they succeed, it's individual. But yeah. if they fail. It's for the group. It's the race, right. So if they do really well, it's always the exception. So I didn't want to go too far off, but that's the background. Um, and then <clears throat> just to touch uh, again on the Spanish-American War, so so these units, they they, they serve in the war. They um, they really distinguish themselves again. Um, and you mentioned Blackjack Pershing earlier. So that that's uh, um, who would we later we would know as General uh, John J. Pershing. But uh, he was – I think he was the leader. <clears throat> um, he commanded. Uh, I think um, – I don't remember if it was the ninth or tenth, but uh, he he was with them in uh, in Cuba, I believe. 
you know, for sure, obviously, he goes in the punitive expedition after Pancho Villa. Right, yeah. So, yeah, he, he, I know he was with them, I, I think, in Spain. But then 20 years later, we have, or 15 years later, um, we have the punitive expedition. And so uh, talk to us about that again. So, But, but between that Spanish-American um, war or the war with Spain and the punitive expedition, which I believe was in 1916, 17 time frame. Exactly, yeah. Right, right, yeah. Uh, first time we use air power for recon, actually. Mm. Um, we don't count balloons in the Civil War. Um, and let, let me close real quick with the um, Spanish-American War mm-hmm. in that uh, a fascinating fact that we have six African-Americans who received the Medal of Honor. Mm. And um, they were the they were five Buffalo soldiers from the 10th, from the oh. 10th Cav, and one sailor. And so, again, for reference, um, mm-hmm. there's a great documentary called The Crucible of Empire. Mm-hmm. Very good documentary, kind of long. And uh, the other a book I'd recommend is Smoke Yanks by Willard B. Gatewood. Okay. And um, so getting into the Mexican ex- expedition, did was there any change in the, in the role of these African-American units? Um, um, and then how, how did Pershing, who, who had a lot of experience with them in the past, how did he use them in the Mexican expedition? Yeah, um, you know, Pershing had experience. Uh, working with with African Americans, uh, when you look at the at the literature, it, it was nothing out of the ordinary. Largely because when uh, when Pershing would, entered Mexico, the expedition last I think over a year, uh, he would send his you know his interpreters, and they say, hey, you know, wh- where's uh, where's Pancho Villa? Tell him where he's at. You know, don't start a Pancho Villa. And their response was, ah, he's Masaya, he's Masaya La Montaña. The translation is, he's over there someplace over the mountain. <laughs> so again, you have uh, <laughs> you have one of the great uh, Mexican heroes. Hey, they're not going to help the Americans get right. this guy. So yeah, so well, it was a, it was it was an effort, but hey, that they weren't going to catch Pancho Villa. So then, you know, we we're involved in in that punitive expedition, as you said, for about a year or so, uh, and then we've got World War One coming up. So I know Pershing is is taken out of there and um, sent overseas, and and uh, starting to um, to uh, put together a force uh, to go and and fight in in France. Uh, um, so what was the role then of African Americans in the um, uh, in World War One? So we see roughly roughly 400,000 uh, African-Americans would serve during the Great War, mm. also known as World War One, with right around 10,000 seeing battle. Now, again, we see the vast majority of African-American soldiers would be in support roles, stevedores, supply, mm-hmm. uh, teamsters, uh, transportation, this sort of thing, where they are not in, in combat roles. And you, 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 there really are, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Early on, there's, there's really not a, hardly any black officers, but I'll get to that in just a moment. But we would see that Pershing, uh, the big thing is that controlled American forces would, would be under for Americans. We're not going to give our guys right. to the, the French. But Pershing does promise the French he will give them some soldiers. Mm-hmm. And he winds it, he, he, he pacified it where he get these blacks off his hands. Mm-hmm. So what he does, he gives um, regiments of the 93rd Division to the French. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, stick with me, the, the French, who are our colonial power at this time, they have experience right. uh, working with uh, people from African descent. They have troops from Senegal, 
And so they have experience employing black stories in combat. Mm-hmm. So you will see that, uh, particularly the, the 369th from Hellfighters, mm-hmm. uh, the, the soldiers of the 93rd, they would be equipped as French units. And there were some challenges as far as adapting to their assignments, mainly the language barrier. But mm-hmm. these sources indicate in letters from the black soldiers so show that they were treated as equal. All right. Wow. Now, we'll see that the, the 369th the Harlem Hellfighters, uh, this regiment was on the front line for mm-hmm. a total of 191 days. Wow. That's five days longer than any other regiment of the American Expeditionary Force. Wow. And France led the entire unit, the Corps de Guerre, mm-hmm. um, along with the other seven, well, it was close to almost 200 others received uh, awards for exceptional gallantry. Mm-hmm. But again, that's, that, that's the, 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 the main backdrop. But if I can mm-hmm. share one more thing, mm-hmm. um, another key point was we see the creation of the very first black officer school at Fort Des Moines, Iowa. Okay. So look, at this stage of the game, look, you're talking about, you know, black enlisted is one thing. Now we're going to start talking about black officers. Mm-hmm. You know, now leading up to this, you only have a few chaplains and, um, you know, Colonel um, Colonel Young, who is a West Point graduate. Right, yeah. And uh, we see that this is another experiment because the, the, the black leadership of the day uh, from the NAACP and others, they're clamoring, well, look, if we're going to fight, Blacks should have should be led by people who look like them, at mm-hmm. least some of them. And so this leads to the creation mm-hmm. of a school for, for, for black officers. So here we are, Fort Des Moines, Iowa. It's away from everything else. Mm-hmm. And the candidates would go through about a three-month, uh, very rigorous program with technical and physical training. So in that first class, and there were only two, mm-hmm. uh, right around 638 officers are created. Now, the, the sad part is that when they would be mustered into the regular army, a lot of them didn't carry their officer commissions. They were, they were degraded, downgraded oh, to wow. um, NCOs, okay? Hmm. So um, we see that in June of 1918, uh, the officers will be, um, I don't want to say reconvened, but brought back together for transportation mm-hmm. uh, over to France. They can fight against the Germans. Mm-hmm. And um, again, they'll be part of the of the, uh, the 92nd Division Expeditionary Force. Oh, wow. um, and they would see battle in France that the Muse are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, again, so this is, they do fight there and fight with dignity. So now it, it, when, we, when we get into um, the post-war or the interwar years from World War One to World War Two, now that we, we're starting to see black officers being trained, were there any changes leading up to the beginning of World War Two uh, in, in, in how... African-Americans served or, or led units? Yes, in the sense that it was not good. Oh. So we see it in 1925, about seven years after the First World War, there's an Army War College study that takes place, and it evaluates the fitness or evaluated the fitness of black soldiers for service in future wars. And the study's recommendations uh, were not good. It was generally dubious about the prospect of black soldiers serving successful in combat roles. So now keep in mind that this is 1925. Yeah. You're going to have hundreds and hundreds of officers will read this study mm-hmm. and they become the future leaders, many right. of them, who will take the take lead the army in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So blacks are not only fighting against uh, institutional racism and and, and stereotypical beliefs of the day. Now they have a 
kind of a, a racist empirical data study mm. from a unit that's been endorsed by them or endorses them of why blacks are not good soldiers. Right. So um, again, this is another uphill battle that blacks will fight against on the eve of the Second World War. So, but then as we launch into the Second World War, uh, what was the state of, of you know um, black officers and uh, black units? And, um, you know, what did they do? How did they serve in the Second World War? Okay, so when we, so we have to look at some of the legislation that was created. So we have Executive Order 8802, which was created in 1941, which largely uh, prohibited racial discrimination in the armed forces. Mm. And, uh, and so look, the Marine Corps, let me talk about the Marines for a moment. From their inception up to this moment, up to that moment, the Marines would refuse to recruit blacks or any of their minorities into their ranks until they had to. Oh, yeah. uh, in 1942, we had mm-hmm. the uh, Mont- uh, Montefiore Point um, Marines in 1942. But uh, we see that with this executive order, we had the creation of the Tuskegee Airmen, 761st Tank Battalion, mm-hmm. uh, the Red Ball Express. These yeah. are all African American units that distinguish themselves. Yeah. Now, um, as far as black officers, uh, we, we well, obviously we have uh, the, uh, Bill Davis Sr. Mm. and his son, Bill Davis Jr., who will be part of the Army Air Corps and they go to the, uh, to the Air Force and become his own branch. But uh, we will see that, that black officers will, will be created. There will be more of them during this war. Um, as far as basically like, a, like an OCS program. All right. So, so there is a, a small expansion, but again, there um, African-American units served in support roles, but really distinguished themselves. Um, but uh, after the war, um, be, between World War II and Korea, we had uh, President Truman issued his uh, executive order 9981 of desegregation. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, what did it say? How and um, how was it implemented? Okay, so um, Executive Order 9981, it's not nearly as clean, cut, and dry as people like to say it was. There's a, let, me, let me get some context. So let's talk about the political side first. We're going to see that in January of 48, uh, which is going to be an election year, that Truman would have a biracial committee on civil rights, which called for the changing of the racial caste system. Basically, they want an easing of laws, uh, more rights for blacks for access, and that, all the things that are promised them under the Constitution. So once Truman announces this, we see that, uh, particularly in the South, led by Senator, uh, excuse me, Governor Strom Thurmond oh, of yeah. South Carolina, mm-hmm. he will create it. He creates his own party uh, yeah. known as the Dixiecrats: South Carolina, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. So again, during the election, he carries those states. Mm-hmm. On the Republican side. Uh, Governor of New York, Thomas Dewey, uh, he winds up carrying 13 northern and Midwest states. So by a plurality, Truman wins the election, but the black voting bloc carries the day for him. Mm. Now, I want to, I've got one little off sequence, but let me get behind that. So now, there are some international push factors, and the international factors are this. In February of 48, a communist coup takes place where in Czechoslovakia mm-hmm. today, modern Slovakia and Czech and the Czech Republic. I'm sure you remember Czechoslovakia. My right. daughter doesn't. It's not <laughs> on the map anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, so with that, 
we see that um, black leaders such as A. Philip Randolph, the NAACP, New York Congressman Adam Clayton Powell, they bring up the fact that blacks are unwilling to serve again in a Jim Crow army. Mm-hmm. And what does Uncle Sam do? They reinstate the draft in March of 48. Mm-hmm. And blacks are, are, are large, like, oh, wait a minute, we're not going to do this again. Mm-hmm. So June of 48, wars, the likelihood of wars increased even greater. Why? Because we have the uh, the Berlin blockade. Mm-hmm. So this is the first major crisis of the Cold War. So this led to the Berlin airlift. Truman thinks it's going to be a war. He's in trouble as far as his elections. Mm-hmm. And so he caters to the black vote. And so when blacks say, hey, we're going to support you if you do X, which is integrate the military, Truman signs executive order on July 26th of 1948. So again, that is the backdrop behind it where he gets mm-hmm. his black support, which takes us up to the election. And, and then what? how was it implemented? So uh, did, did, did it mean all of a sudden we have integrated units? Yeah, so, okay, so the, the, the thing about this, I've been able to interview uh, through my research, several African-Americans were in the Army back then. And within the ranks, their leadership told them, hey, guys, nothing's going to change. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, nothing's going to wow. change at all. You, you blacks going to be treated any different. So the, that push factor is going to be the beginning of the Korean War. Mm. And again, uh, Executive Order 981 had been out there for, for more than two years. Wow. But it becomes a manpower need mm-hmm. of where we see that uh, black uh, regiments had been over... Um, not oversupplied, but their numbers, their built numbers were above strength. Mm-hmm. So they were a natural manpower flow to send over to South Korea to help stop that gap. Mm. So again, it, it always comes down to the emergency man poise, yeah. emergency manpower uh, mm-hmm. question again, Lee. So that's where we're at. Yeah. But so, I think the big picture mm-hmm. is political component, mm-hmm. a manpower component, mm-hmm. and a civil rights component. Yeah, definitely. Because... Yeah, even though the order was issued in 48, I think um, the ex, at least on the active duty side, the uh, the army um, on paper at least was uh, integrated, I think, by 1954. So it, it, it took a while to get full implementation. It takes a while. Yeah. The reserve and guard, I don't think, uh, fully implemented um, really until later. I think the reserve was late 50s and the guard, I... I if I remember right, it wasn't until 1964-65. But again, then we're into Vietnam, and so it becomes an issue there uh, for for need of, for manpower. But also, you know, a lot of the units that the National Guard was slower to integrate uh, when you consider a lot of the units, the National Guard units in, in the South, I think, just um, pushed back on that. Right, and there's, there's so much uh, local politics involved, I yeah. mean, Heck, black, black, black people have a hard time even voting back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, much less we're going to let you in the military. Mm-hmm. But but now as we move forward into in- integration, expanding the role of African-Americans, um, you're, you're starting to see a lot more um, African-Americans as officers. So uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the importance of the, uh, the role played by the historically uh, black colleges and universities in creating the black officer corps. Absolutely. Um, so HBCUs, historical black colleges and universities, uh, you you have to remember, Lee, that over 75% of the black officer corps will come from HBCUs. Wow. And when we're talking about the, the, the 60s, well, 
I mean, where would where would they go? Mm-hmm. Um, unless you you know you, you could you could go to Ohio State, um, mm-hmm. probably go out to UCLA or someplace like that. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, uh, we see African Americans uh, going to these historically black colleges for a couple of reasons. First, um, there are people there that look like them. They do not have that um, that resistance uh, that would take place at a traditional traditional white college. When we look at um, what took place at um, Old Miss, this sort of thing, these integration issues. Mm-hmm. So uh, remember, I think the biggest thing to keep in mind is that HBCUs have have and had a mission of developing African Americans. Uh, beyond the curriculum, but also the content of mm-hmm. the character, because right. these are the young men and women who are going to go back and serve those communities. Mm-hmm. Now, the transition of going from an all-black environment uh, to an all-white environment was was challenging mm-hmm. uh, for the vast majority of black officers, because again, when they've been told, well, until this era, they they see that they're told they're never good enough. Now they have to go and, and, and prove it. Right. And when I've interviewed um, some of my black officers, uh, they talk about where we had to overwhelm our detractors with uh, with competence. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an uphill battle that they would face. But these HBCUs, um, again, they, they play a critical role even today mm-hmm. um, as far as our ROTC uh, battalions are concerned as far as again creating uh, the Black Officer Corps. Not, not that's not just the Army, but that's mm-hmm. the the Navy and Air Force component mm-hmm. as well. Right. And then uh, I don't want to rush it, but we're getting uh, close on time here. But uh, uh, just can you just talk about r- race relations then from uh, from Vietnam through today, and, and, and what were what are some of the continuing challenges and and themes? So when you would. As we get out of the 60s, into the 70s, into the 80s, when you would ask African-American officers, even the military, mm-hmm. just ask, do we have integration? Yes, of course right. we did. We had integration. But there was not equal opportunity. Mm-hmm. There's not equal opportunity. And without the um, ability for African-American officers to, re- to get regular army commissions, the, the vastity of blacks or reserve commissions. Well, back then with the reserve commission, you weren't going to get selected uh, for X type of leadership school or mm-hmm. X type of service college. You, you, you really would be put out of the military, had to retire from the military if you didn't make lieutenant colonel and you didn't see a lot of lieutenant colonels if they were black mm-hmm. uh, majors making lieutenant colonel. So uh, the other thing that blacks had going against them was the fact that they had very few advocates. Remember, the, the mm-hmm. black officer corps, it, it's never more than 5,000 during the Vietnam War. Oh, wow. And so people who can advocate for advocate for you, mm-hmm. people who can open these doors, people who are going to be your raider, uh, we don't see this uh, for, for black officers. So they're often left behind or unfairly rated compared to the white counterparts. Okay. And if... Uh, if you read, read my book in the Black Officer Corps, the, the Butler study um, clearly indicates that for the better part of from 1964 to 1973, black officers were rated 10 to 15 points lower than white officers mm-hmm. with education and assignments being equal. Mm-hmm. So if it's not your education uh, and it's not your job performance, what else could it be? 
Yeah. And um, today, you know, uh, when we look at things today, how um, uh, there, there's a lot of talk about, you know, diversity, inclusion, e- equity. What, uh, just as a final comment on all this, how, how would you say we stand today? Look, I would put it this way. Look, there is still work to do. Yeah. Still work to do. Mm-hmm. The World for Diversity, Quality, and Inclusion project is always under construction. Always under construction. Mm-hmm. But remember that talent is indiscriminate and excellence knows no color or gender. Mm-hmm. And look, we, we have history. It tells us that we must be vigilant and proactive in ensuring that our army, our society, recruits and brings in the best people from all ethnic and racial backgrounds. Because when, when, when you build up um, a, a, like these, these HGBCUs, a stronger black America, it makes a stronger collective America. And that's good for everyone. All right. Well, good. Well, uh, thank you, Isaac, so much. Um, this has been a great discussion. Uh, yeah, you know, I know it, it, it deserves a lot more time, uh, but it's been a, a really good overview of uh, the role of African-Americans in uh, Army history. But before we close, we've got our, our segment called Who Would Trivia? So do you have a, a piece of significant Army trivia, uh, something that, uh, you know, you can wow the audience with, with some piece of Army trivia about the role of African-Americans in Army history? Yes, a piece of uh, trivia um, is going to be that during World War II, during World War II, how many African-Americans received the Congressional Medal of Honor? Mm. And how many was that? That number was zero. Wow. Because it was understood but unspoken that mm. no African-Americans received the Medal of Honor, the nation's wow. highest military award. Mm-hmm. Now, post-World War II, we have, uh, uh, are we looking at these these significant actions written by officers about blacks who are deserving, but um, this is what was happening. So it's a it's a, it's a sad story, but um, you know we have to look at history the way it was, right. not the way we would like it to be. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where we're at. So I wish I could on a higher note. Yeah, but, yeah uh, no, but but uh, but like you said, there there has been an effort on the part of uh, the army and the military in, in, in general to go back and look at. Previous conflicts. I mean, uh, even World War One, uh, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam. Uh, a lot of these these actions by African Americans and, and other minorities are being relooked, and a lot of these medals have been upgraded to uh, medals of honor. So, absolutely. If I could just give me, just give me one more minute, if I can share a person's yeah. name. A man to remember is William Henry Johnson. Yes, William Henry Johnson. There's a lot written about him, but. This man had an amazing feat of bravery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in 1918, in the Argonne Forest, this man fought hand-to-hand with Germans, suffering 21 wounds mm-hmm. while rescuing a fellow soldier. Mm-hmm. And he was finally awarded a Purple Heart in 96. And in 2015, President Barack Obama finally awarded him the Medal of Honor. Yeah, his story is fascinating. Uh, we highlight his story on our website and on our social media. So it's, it, it is a fascinating story. Um, thanks yes, for bringing sir. that one up. Yeah. Well, thank you, Isaac, for your insights today about the role of um, African-Americans in Army history. And if anyone wants to learn more about the history of African-Americans in the Army or learn more about Army history in general, then I encourage you to explore our website at history.army.mil. And if you want to experience Army history every day, then visit our social media sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for joining us today on the United States Army History and Heritage Podcast. For the Center of Military History, I'm Lee Reynolds. And until next time, we're history. 
The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or opinions of the U.S. Army or Department of Defense. For more information about the Army's proud history and heritage, go to history.army.mil.com.